Today is Tuesday, June 7th, and this is Episode 9 of Hard to Kill. Okay, welcome back for another episode of Hard to Kill. As always, I'm Jeff Allgaier. Unfortunately, this week I am not joined by my wife and co-host Katie as uh, we now have our kids off for the summer from school. And with four kids, it was difficult this week to to try and find some time where we could uh, get this podcast recorded and done without noise and you know, have that being annoying for you guys to listen to. So we will figure that out where we're not going to go uh, three months without her. Uh, that would not even be fun to record this podcast by myself, but today that's what we're going to do. Um, last week we talked about the perfect human diet, or last two weeks two weeks ago, last episode, we talked about the perfect human diet and kind of the criteria that we think are really important when looking at how we feed ourselves, when we feed ourselves, uh, you know, that should give us a framework to look at some of these diets now, whether it's keto diet, whether it's the Mediterranean diet, the Whole30 paleo diet that gives us a framework um, that is bulletproof uh, in finding, okay, what is what are we genetically designed to eat? Uh, when are we genetically designed to eat? How do we make our food consumption uh, the most beneficial for our quantity and quality of life? So longevity and health is what we're after, obviously with being hard to kill. So we will get back into that this week and uh, dive a little bit more deeply into some of the, the popular diets that are out there that I just mentioned. Um, and we'll, so this is kind of part two of the, uh, of the uh, podcast we did last episode. So before we get into that, of course, uh, we always like to go through some of the, you know, maybe new studies that are out there and things that are uh, interesting in the vein of longevity and health and uh, resiliency, etc. cetera. Uh, Kind of a fun one, chiropractically, there was a uh, article done in Medicine uh, in March 2022 that talked about walking. Uh, so according to a study that included over 5,000 adults taking a, f- a walk on five or more days a week may reduce the risk for low back pain up to 43%. The finding adds to a growing body of research on the benefits of taking a daily walk. Uh, this is something that we wholeheartedly agree with. Uh, we're huge advocates of, of uh, movement. Uh, especially walking, there really is, uh, I mean, there's lots of things that we need to be doing movement wise, but there, there literally is nothing better and simpler for you that should be done every day than walking and how that relates obviously to the spine, you know, why it affects back pain so much is joints need movement to be healthy. Uh, there is no joint in the body that if you immobilize is going to be healthier at the end of that immobilization. Uh, you know, people that break an arm, for instance, that have to put their arm in a cast, you know, it takes rehab after that to get that joint range of motion back because the, the, the literally the joint begins to degenerate and the spine is, you've got 24 vertebrae and I think there's something like seven joints, uh, between the, the vertebrae above and above and below, um, on at each segment that all require movement to be healthy. And with our sedentary lifestyle, with the amount that we sit, uh, there, there is no question that one of the, we go over this with our patients all the time that one of the biggest things that we do that aggravates our joints in the low back is, is simply being sedentary. It's sitting too much. It's not moving. Uh, that causes disc issues, disc dehydration. I think there was a, I think I learned this in chiropractic school. Again, if I had my wife here, she's smarter than me. She would, uh, be able to confirm this, but, uh, there is a process, uh, called creep, uh, that within 20 minutes of 
inactivity that the discs of your spine start to dehydrate. Uh, and so you lose water and I think the lose water out of the discs in your spine after 20 minutes of those joints not moving correctly. And then again, that process is called creep. I, that's kind of why I remember it. Uh, any Stone Temple Pilot fans out there? Uh, also a great song. Um, so super important to make sure that we are doing this every every single day. This is not something that we necessarily even had to think about, you know, years ago. Uh, but now with, you know, how much we you know work from home, drive everywhere, uh, you know, how much we're working, you know, even at the office, whatever it is, we just are so sedentary. Even if we work out, it just, we don't. So I'm such a big fan of, you know, having devices like a pedometer to be able to track how many steps we get in a day and it just gives us an, a better idea of how much we've moved and where we're at with that. So, and again, it's not just good for the back. I mean, that could be knees, hips, you know, the whole deal that, you know, movement is so good. And I know there's going to be people thinking, well, I can't walk because my knees are bad, you know, and I, certainly if your body gets to that state, that can be aggravating. But the whole point is, is, you know, one of the reasons where our joints have degenerated so much is because we, we didn't get enough of that movement. Uh, on to the next one. This came out of uh, Science of the Environment, uh, June 2022. Uh, air pollution linked to sleep apnea. So according to a recent study, individuals living in areas with increased exposure to pollutants resulting from the combustion of coal, oil, gasoline may have up to 24% greater risk for mild obstructive sleep apnea than people residing in neighborhoods with cleaner air. Um, I think this just confirms, you know, some of the a theme that we've we've covered is just really how we've pickled our environment. Um, they really we've just introduced so much unnatural stuff that we are breathing in. So especially living in cities where we're exposed to, you know, more factories, more cars driving by, etc. Uh, and there have definitely noticed an increase, you know, a link in that and and sleep apnea, which is just really becoming uh, again super common. It's not the only cause of sleep apnea, certainly. Uh, or the only aggravating factor of, of sleep apnea. I don't. I wouldn't go as far as to say this is a cause of sleep apnea, but I do think it aggravates sleep apnea, um, which we can, you know, the cause of disease is is we we often blame it on an environmental thing, but often it's an internal function problem. Something in the body isn't working correctly, and then that is aggravated or it's made more obvious by, uh, you know, environmental factors. So, for instance, if we were you know, if you're walking across your floor and you hear a squeak in the floor, well, you could say that the the walking caused the squeak, but you should be able to walk on a floor, of course, and without it squeaking. And so there there is a an issue in the floorboards, you know, that that's the root cause of the problem. We notice that problem when we are, uh, when we put it under stress. And so that's how we kind of view this as we look at the environment, you know, pollution as a stress. We look at viruses as a stress. You know, viruses don't make you sick per se. If that was that was the only factor, you'd be sick all the time. It's the resistance in the body that is a plays a bigger role in whether people get sick or not. And we've covered that on, on past podcasts. But, you know, cancer, heart disease, we can look at all these things and say, well, this caused this. Uh, but again, they're, they're, I think a lot of these stresses can aggravate an already existing problem rather than be the direct cause. But in either event, uh, you know, the air pollution certainly is becoming a stress on our air pathways and whether it's allergies, whether it's, uh, you know, irritation, whether it's chronic coughs, whether it's sleep apnea, uh, you know, this is another thing the body has to deal with. And another thing that we should, you know, try and take control of in our environment is minimizing the amount of chemical stress that we're exposed to. 
Uh, we talked about alcohol a little while ago, but here's another an, or a couple podcasts ago. But here's another study that came out of the International Journal of Cancer, July of 2022. Uh, it's about basically heavy drinking could have lifelong consequences, uh, especially when with cancer later in life. Using data from the Melbourne Collective Collaborative, pardon me, cohort study, researchers report that heavy drinking among men from 29 to 40 years is associated with a 75 to 94% increased risk for alcohol-related cancer later in life, even if they reduce intake after age 40. And this should be alarming for a lot of us. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this are maybe over 40, but those that aren't, you know, it's it, this is so true of so many things that, you know, by the time that w- we actually start to kind of take care of ourselves, we've the damage has been done. You know, like I I think about even my own life, really, it, you know, it's in the last couple of years that I've, and I've never been a big drinker, but, you know, certainly have thought about the long-term consequences of even a few drinks and what that does to not just how I feel now, but how, what that's going to do later on in life when I'm 60, when I'm 70, when I'm 80, um, you know, and that, that's big. And I think sometimes when we're, you know, 20 to 40, maybe not the smartest, we we don't eat great, don't see the consequences right away. We drink more than we should, don't see the consequences right away. Uh, you know, thank God a lot of people are, there's a lot less people smoking now than they used to be. But, you know, you start smoking, you probably don't, <coughs> as I cough, that's funny, uh, don't notice the consequences. <coughs> Pardon me. That's all that air pollution. Uh, all those consequences right away. We see them later on in life and it's too late to turn it around by that point. We have a lot of patients like that in the office where, by the time that I see them for some sort of health issue, whether it's something like back pain or something more significant, like the damage has been done. We've, we, you know, one of the things we teach people is that by the time that we feel a symptom, the body has had to lose between 60, between 40 and 60 normal body function. So this is a, a tremendous amount of actual loss of health and function in the body before we're aware that it's there. And these delayed consequences of our behavior, our actions, and how that relates to health issues is, is I think, why we have such a, uh, we have such a problem with this. We have so much chronic disease in Western culture, um, is that we kind of live how we want early in life, and you know, deal with the consequences later. And we have this concept like, well, no problem. Once I get to be 50, I can just take my Lipitor, take my blood pressure medications if I have these issues begin to show up. Or we teach that it really doesn't matter what your lifestyle is. You know, your high blood pressure, your obesity, it's genetic, which is, you know, BS. And we've covered that before. So both of those excuses are bad. And, and you know, we live in a world of cause and effect. And so what we do early in our life uh, plays a role, uh, a big role in our quality of life when we get to the end of our life. So another, another strike against alcohol, specifically heavy drinking. Uh this is a, an article on sleep that came out in Natural Aging. Uh, it was in April of 2022, April of this year. Talks about the perfect amount of sleep for those over 40. Following an analysis of data concerning the sleep patterns, mental health, well-being, and brain imaging data of nearly 40,000 adults, that's a big sample, researchers report that seven hours appears to be the ideal amount needed for promoting brain health in individuals over age 40. And I thought this was interesting. Um, we always say eight hours, uh, but th- it is true that that as we age, we do need to sleep a little bit less and that will decrease. And so this study came out and said, okay, so if you're over 40, it does appear that seven hours is ideal. 
younger than 40, certainly I would stamp my foot down and say, no, we still need to be, you know, at eight hour range or more. Obviously with younger kids, you know, some of our, our, you know, when a baby's born, they're sleeping 15 hours a day. They're awake hardly any hours a day, uh, you know, right away. And then toddlers, it might be 10 or 12 and then 10 hours and then eight. So as we age, that will decrease. But if we're over 40, uh, we need to shoot for at least seven. And I would, I think this is an important point. Uh, the consequences of oversleeping are a lot less damaging than the consequences of undersleeping. So if we're going to err on the side of caution here, you know, I'm 41, still trying to get eight hours of sleep. Do feel like I do okay on 40. But again, if we go back to the, uh, you know, alcohol study, what we feel now doesn't necessarily mean that's the best for us when, you know, as these, sometimes the consequences of our actions can take 10, 20, 30, 40 years to manifest. And so, you know, I do think more is better than less. Uh, that's for sure. Another sleep study. Uh, this is about sleep and prostate cancer. This is from Prostate, June of 2022. Using data from the UK Biobank, researchers report that men with insomnia have an 11% increased risk of prostate cancer, while those who normally take an afternoon nap may have up to a 9% reduced risk for the disease. So kind of an interesting way to put that. Uh, so there maybe a little... so. Hard to parse that out, but if you if you had insomnia, it was 11% increased risk of prostate cancer compared to those who didn't have insomnia, and then those people who took a nap uh, in the afternoon had a 9% reduced risk for the disease. And again, we've talked about this. Everything in medicine is so, you know, therapy is compared to a disease. And so I this is, you know, I wouldn't, we don't, I wouldn't look at this and say, okay, so sleep is a treatment for prostate cancer or a prevention for prostate cancer. Sleep is essential for a normally functioning body and a normally functioning body is necessary to not get cancer. All disease boils down to some parts of the body not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's a lack of health, a lack of function in the body. And so even though, again, in medicine, they in Western culture, we look at this as, you know, we, we break this down into a, a therapy and a disease. The point of this, the reason we put this in here is, is just to show that there are real life consequences to not getting enough sleep um, <clears throat> later on in life. Uh, things like cancer, and in this case, they studied prostate cancer. But sleep is essential for a healing functioning body. And when we don't get there, you know, disease is, is the natural result. Uh, lifting weights may help manage hot flashes and night sweats. Thank God, not something I have to deal with. But uh, from the uh, a journal called Climacteric of June 2022, for most menopausal women who frequently experience moderate to severe vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats, uh, obviously usually associated with uh, or premenopause uh, and sometimes even perimenopause, Researchers report that engaging in resistance training three times a week for 15 weeks may result in, a, in significant improvements on menopause-specific health-rated quality of life assessments. Again, this is done in a <laughs> disease therapy symptom model. But I think the way to look at this is, this is one thing that as we get older, we really drop from our health regimen is lifting weights, is resistance training. And maintaining muscle mass is important for maintaining a normal function in the body, helping the body to deal with the different stresses that it has to go through, like hormone changes due to menopause. So there, this is a, a big encouragement as we age and for our, our parents, grandparents. Again, I know we have a wide range of people listening to this, but uh, male, female, it doesn't matter that maintaining that resistance training and maintaining muscle mass 
is so important. We will talk about this on later podcasts, but it is so important for normalizing things like metabolism, hormone control, balance, coordination, uh, proprioceptive input. So movement input into the brain, which is important for uh, uh, helping to balance out the body's fight or flight ver- or growth and, you know, the fight or flight, sympathetic, parasympathetic, uh, neurologic balance uh, in the body. So this is just something that it should be, you know, lifting weights and maintaining muscle strength and muscle mass is crucial for healthy aging and maintain, you know, obviously being hard to kill. Uh, now we're going to move on to some stuff with kids. I got three in a row here that deal with kiddos. Um, this is from a European Journal of Pediatrics, May 2022. A survey of almost 16,000 children and t- t- teenagers, this was a survey, revealed that only about half get sufficient sleep. A third spend too much time using electronic devices. A third fail to meet physical activity guidelines. That's crazy. Uh, this finding is concerning as poor health habits that develop in children are likely to persist into adulthood. Um, so that was from the study. And again, we totally agree with that. Obviously, we just mentioned that, that the habits that we, you know, we talked about the alcohol study or the sleep study, uh, the alcohol, you know, drinking heavy alcohol between 20 and 40 cause an in- increased risk of prostate cancer later on in life. I mean, you know, just think of what we're doing. Our, our kids are even younger than that now. Uh, we are raising our kids in such a different environment than they are genetically designed to live in. So not sleeping enough, uh, spending too much time using electronic devices, which usually is associated with being sedentary, not being outside, not breathing the fresh air, not getting exposed to the germs and microbes that are out in the environment, which are so crucial uh, in in building a good micro uh, flora you know, in your gut. Um, it's all the bacteria that live on and inside your body, which is so important for immune function, for digestion. Um, so they're just, we're, you know, our kids are not getting what they need. Uh, and it's, it's between a third and half are, you know, we're actually seeing, I mean, a third fail to meet physical activity guidelines and the physical, physical activity guidelines are not real strong. It, it's like 60 minutes a day of, of, uh, you know, activity, which is a minimum. That's a minimum to live. That's not even to thrive. That's not even to be hard to kill. That's just to stay alive, basically, I would argue. Uh, so we need to do a better job. Uh, and in really inspiring our kids. And this is, you know, our kids, number one, look at us. It's a lot easier, you know, when our kids, when we model in our own life, and I'm talking to myself here, I know it probably feels like I'm preaching a lot on this, but literally in in my brain, I've got, you know, myself sitting across from me that, that you know, I'm talking to, so I don't ever mean to sound preachy when we go through this stuff, but you know, our kids learn from what we do versus what we say. And it's hard for us to tell our kids to eat healthy, to get our steps into exercise. If you know, whatever it is, get to sleep on time if they don't see us doing it. And so we really need to be role models, uh, for our kids. If we expect any change to happen and, and to really take a look at, I think sometimes we get, um, we get our, like our, our mindset changes, the reference changes because we start to see what's normal versus what's common. And it it's not normal to not get sleep. It's not normal to be on electronic devices. It's not normal to not get enough physical activity. It's very common nowadays. And so sometimes we look at our own life and I am guilty of this too. And it's like, well, we do better than most. Great. But I don't want to be average. I don't want my kids to be average. I don't want them to even be better than average. I want them to reach their potential. Like I don't want to 
we don't want to compare to what's out there. We want to fulfill what God has, you know, called us to in our life, what, what we've been genetically gifted with, what our potential is. Those are the things, these are the questions we have to ask. Um, so how are we living compared to what we're genetically designed to live versus what's common out there? So, and that really is a kick in the butt for all of us, myself included. Um, and this is, well, I won't get into that. Okay. Uh, following an analysis of data on more than 40,000 adults. And I don't know where this came from. I'd never copied that. Sorry. Uh, but 400,000 adults, researchers report that obesity during childhood is linked to an increased risk for type 1 diabetes later on in life. Type 1 diabetes is, of course, when the pancreas fails uh, compared to type 2 diabetes, which is so type 1 diabetes is an increase in blood sugar because the pancreas is failing to produce enough insulin. Type 2 diabetes is an increase in blood sugar because the body has stopped listening to insulin. The cells of the body stop responding to the hormone insulin even though the pancreas can be pumping out more and more and more. Uh, researchers, researcher, pardon me, Dr. Tom Richardson adds, the effect of childhood obesity directly increases type 1 diabetes risk, emphasizing the importance of implementing preventative policies to lower the prevalence of childhood obesity and its subsequent influence on the rising case number of cases for this lifelong disease period. Uh, period. Didn't have to put the period in there. Um so yeah, he's exactly right. Obviously, uh, this is something that's becoming more and more common. And I mean, that's a huge 400,000 adults were in this study and, and just a, a big link uh, associated with that, uh, with childhood obesity, which is growing. So uh, obviously we need to do something about that. And finally, from the American Journal of Human Biology, May of this year, less active preschool age kids get less sleep. Among a group of 270 preschoolers, preschoolers, pardon me, researchers, researchers, I can't talk today, observed an association between more sedentary time during the day and less sleep at night. The findings suggest that replacing sedentary time with physical activity may improve sleep in children. So we just did a workshop in our office all about sleep that will transition into a podcast or a couple of them on sleep. And, you know, that's exactly right. We said the same thing that getting enough physical activity in the day, if your body's not actually moving enough during the day, you're, you don't you're not going to be uh, setting the body up for good sleep at night. And so when our kids don't move, this can be one reason why they're just not getting enough uh, proper, good, restful sleep at night. So making sure our kids are, are getting out there and, and as adults too, this doesn't just apply for kids, but you know, it's our kids a lot of the time have no hope uh, because they're being, we're not doing the right stuff uh, now and we're just setting them up for disease later on in life. And then we're going to blame it all on genetics and sell them a drug. And that's the happy dance that happens. And that sounds harsh, but I don't think that's uh, a hyperbole. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Um, there's really, you know, we have these kind of cursory things that come out like, hey, we need to get more sleep. You know, but it, you know, it just is we, this needs to be a priority. Um, and I think that that's, you know, you look at where the U.S., where we spend all of our money, uh, and it's on treatment, it's not on prevention. Uh, but again, I also think it's not up to the medical doctors to teach us about prevention. You know, this is one thing we, if we want to be hard to kill, we have to start owning um, everything, 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 everything. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to raise our kids. It's our responsibility to be healthy ourselves. It's our responsibility. It's not our, it's not our, your chiropractor's responsibility for you to be healthy. It's not your medical doctor's responsibility for you to be healthy. 
you can do that. You can give them responsibility and you can hire people and get advice and consult with them. But at the end of the day, it's, it's our responsibility. I believe we talked about this before, but you know, we've had people, I've spoken to so many patients that were like, well, I didn't want to do this treatment or whatever, but my doctor made me. And I, I'm just baffled at that, that we have, we've really handed over our own responsibility. And I understand that they know more than us. And so we need to trust them. But you know, the more that we just do what other people tell us to myself included, you know, hopefully you guys are all listening to this podcast with an air of skepticism and going, okay, I'm going to listen to this, but I'm not just going to take Dr. Jeff's word forward or, or whoever that, you know, you need to own this stuff. You need, we, we need to become better advocates for ourselves in this. Um, and that's, especially when it comes to prevention. I mean, we just can't rely on the government. We just really can't rely on the government to do about anything. Uh, we need to take responsibility in our communities, in our families, for ourselves personally, if we want to see change uh, in our world. I've really landed on this politically and I don't want to get political. Well, I do want to get political on this. I feel like I would love actually to have a political uh, a podcast, but there's enough of those out there. But, you know, it. the one thing that has to change is uh, I don't care what side of the aisle in the States with two aisles or up in Canada's... We have some listeners up there. Most of them are related to me. Um, the you know five or six parties up there is we keep thinking that if we just put the right people in office, we're going to solve problems. It's not happening. It's never happened. It's not going to happen. It is up to you and I to make changes. You know, we think about these school shootings that have happened. You know, whether we want to take guns away or we want to put more police in front of our schools or both, whatever you know, we keep, it's all about now. It's like, we just go, well, who do we need to vote into office? We have to quit relying on the freaking government to do stuff. They are useless. Uh, for the most part, uh, everything is slow. It's every single person. Okay. So now I'm getting, now I'm just getting angry, but there's so much influence into what decisions get made in a government by other interests that are not actually benefiting you or your kids uh, that is disgusting. And so I just think we, we, it's not to say the government, we don't need a government. I'm not an anarchist, but we, we have to understand that whether it's health, whether it's safety, that it is up to us as parents, it is up to us as individuals. It is up to us as community members to make a difference, not to just simply vote someone into office and think that that's going to solve anything. Uh, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Uh, relying on someone I got to think about these people that even are if we go back to health and I'm sorry to hijack this conversation a little bit but you know we just sat through a pandemic where we had our even our educated experts which there might even be some you know more qualification for some of these people appointed into the you know the CDC and that, and that sort of stuff uh, compared to these the people that we elect into Congress uh, or, or the Senate or a presidency or you know what into the house up in Canada as our, our prime minister. Uh, they're just people that want a popularity contest, basically. I mean, they may, you know what I'm saying? Like there's why we think that we can elect a president that, and it's going to, that president, whether they've been in office their whole life or they ran a business for their whole life, uh, you know, they're going to come in and just solve a country's problems is, it really is uh, crazy to me. But, you know, we have such a narrow view, even with the health thing. I mean, look at how we, we our officials that we've relied on were wrong about so many things and then people that actually had good inputs were silenced because they didn't agree with the majority when it come when we turn out that they were bang on and 100% right 
is just more, uh, you know, ammunition is just more evidence that, that, uh, you know, giving fewer and fewer people more and more control over our life is the wrong thing to do. It's the wrong way to go. Uh, so anyway, whether that's health, gun control, borders, whatever, <laughs> fewer and fewer people should not have more and more power over our lives. You and I should have as much power over our lives and have access to as much information uh, as possible to make judgments on how we, what we need to do. So anyway, okay, sorry about that. Uh, I need to get that off my, off my chest. Okay, so let's dive into, uh, back into the diet thing. We, we kind of ended last time talking about macros and that was, we we're gonna look at, I, I don't think we did end up talking about macros, but when we look at these diets, we, so A, we talked about last week, I think it was 10 or 11, you know, these are the prime things that we need to look at uh, as far as the perfect human diet. If you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to go back and, and review that. Um, and one of the other things we're going to do today is talk about macronutrients, which is a way that we can kind of break up. There's really three macronutrients and all the food that we eat, it can get broken up into three things. It can be uh, protein, there can be fat, and there can be carbs. And each of those things can be broken up even further. Like for instance, in the carbohydrate, we have simple carbs, we have that's like sugar. We have complex carbs. Those are those are carbohydrates like starches and fibers that they're a little bit harder to break down. They're, the molecules are bigger. And they're they're you know. So we talk about if you're on the keto diet, you know, you want high fiber carbs. If you're going to do carbs, you want those. You you don't want those carbs releasing sugar. You just want those carbs staying undigestible, basically as fiber, uh, for the you know the sake of the gut. If you go down that road. Um, we'll talk about that, uh, of course. So, uh, and fats, again, you've got saturated fats, you've got, you know, monounsaturated fats, you've got polyunsaturated fats. Uh, so you've got all these trans fats, well, made in a laboratory. You've got all these different things. And we're going to, we're going to talk about the breakdown of some of the popular diets in the, how the, the macros are spread out. And, um, uh, I, I'm not so sold that there should be a, a super solid macro that we need to stick to. But we'll talk about like the Western diet. We'll just start with if you're an average American, uh, you, know, you think about what is American food. It's it's fast food a lot of the time. It's fried foods. It's, it's heavy processed foods. Uh, so, you know, let's just be average here. We wake up in the morning. Usually we have cereal. So that's a processed carbohydrate. Uh, terrible for you. Yes, there are some good things in grains. Yes, there are some good things you can put in the cereal, but that is, you know, <laughs> the benefits do not outweigh the risks or, or the negatives, I would say, in, in that case. Um, so even if we're trying to be healthy, we might have oatmeal in the morning, maybe some fruit, which is a little a little better step, but we have waffles, pancakes, you know, breakfast food is usually sugar-filled food. And then we usually have lunch, which, you know, this can vary for people, but, you know, the old standard is a sandwich, Um you know, whatever, uh, maybe a piece of fruit there, maybe some vegetables. Okay, good. And then dinner, you, you think about the American favorites for dinner. We have burgers, we have, you know, lots of fried food. We have lasagnas and pastas, pizzas. Um, trying to think what's, we, we haven't, I grew up in a family that didn't, we ate pretty good. I think as, as I recall and look back on the foods that we eat, it seemed very diverse. And my mom was very good about making sure that we got our 
you know, had a fresh salad every night and, and, and we're eating pretty healthy. Uh, but a lot of it is built around convenience now. We have such busy schedules that the, the Western diet is it's very highly processed. And what's interesting about this is when you look at the macros. So on average, the, the macro breakup is like this. We typically consume for the standard American diet, which is an official term, by the way, uh, is about 30% of all the calories that we eat or all the food that we eat comes from, it's, it's basically fat. So we have 30% of the food that we eat is fat. We have about 15% is protein, uh, which is pretty low. And we have about 55% uh, is carbs. So that, that macro breakup, 15% protein, 30% fat, 55% carbs, very, very carb heavy. And what's interesting about this is when you look at, there's another diet that that uh so the mediterranean diet is kind of popular um nowadays you hear that it, it really there was a, a book that i read when i was in chiropractic college the first time i so this was maybe 20 years ago that i first started hearing about the quote-unquote mediterranean diet uh there was a book written by a minnesotan his name was dan butner i believe and it was called the blue zones and it really looked at uh there's you know i can't remember the exact number five six seven eight you know different circles around the world populations around the world that have a very high percentage of those populations living to be centurions or live over a hundred um, and so he went and studied these people and looked for commonalities and how they lived what they did or whatever but one of them was in uh, the mediterranean somewhere and it was i'm gonna blank on this uh santorini i think is was the place and maybe that's greece italy i don't really know uh, but it's all it's a Mediterranean area. But um, so this diet is really high in olive oils and legumes, which are like beans come from legumes. There is a lot of cereal grains in there, but they are unrefined. Lots of fruits, lots of vegetables. The proteins they eat, they they eat are have a high consumption of fish, so they don't eat a lot of red meat. They don't eat a lot of chicken. Not that it's absent, but there's maybe lamb in there. But it's a it's a very high. Uh, proportion of fish obviously the mediterranean you know sea ocean it's a sea right it's not an ocean mediterranean sea being right there there was moderate dairy intake especially from cheese and yogurt and even moderate wine consumption and actually what was really interesting about that blue zones is a lot of them had had a fairly high uh surprisingly high alcohol consumption uh, there was a couple of populations that didn't, but most of them did in that book. So it was really a really fascinating book. Uh, might be time for a reread on my end uh, as well. So what's interesting about the, the Mediterranean diet is if you look at the average macros for the Mediterranean, diet, it looks almost identical to the standard American diet. So we have 32% fat instead of 30% fat. We have 14% um, protein, and then which is identical. And then we have 55% carbs uh so it looks you look at this and go well that looks the same and so this is the concern of if we just get too if we zoom out too much and go okay i'm just looking at my macros here my macros seem to fit a mediterranean macro it's it's the subtypes that make a big difference so you know again the macros of 55 percent carbs it's actually a very high carb intake uh considering but it's the the carbohydrates that they eat are are highly unprocessed so even when they do eat grains they're very high it's very unprocessed grains uh you're getting more whole the whole husk in there they're not adding a lot of other stuff in um and the carbs are are even heavier into plants and like you know fruits and vegetables than than even grain heavy and although we think like mediterranean you think italian you think your pizzas and your lasagnas and 
the spaghetti and uh, just delicious food, you know, a, a lot of that food, even the breads that they eat, you know, a lot of that stuff there is they are heavier in carbs with they eat more plants and and uh, vegetables and fruits rather uh, than the standard American does. So their carbs are high, but they're complex carbs. They're high fiber carbs, which are significantly better for the your metabolism, significantly better for your gut, um, significantly better for insulin levels than the, the, the American kind of standard Western counterpart of that. Um, yeah, I still think it's low if I'm getting real picky. I think it's low on the protein intake. Uh, I think it's maybe a little lower on the fat intake, although it's not bad. Uh, if you're going, yeah, yeah. Uh, but really high on the carbon take, uh, especially if you're in the standard American diet. So, uh, versus the Mediterranean diet, but the Mediterranean diet has been shown to be very, very, very effective at, uh, helping people with, you know, lower risks of cardiovascular disease, even though it's, even though it's higher in fat, it's not keto high in fat. Uh, it's not paleo high in fat, but it's, you know, so it's not terrible, but, uh, you know, there's, you think of olive oils and all this stuff when you hear that fat's bad for you. Well, it's not, not so much. A lot of the, it's, that's really not true. It's I think the high fiber that really played the big role with that Mediterranean diet, but that's a good one to look into. Um, it's a lot of whole, I mean, again, the one thing you're going to see with these diets is like, and this is, we always talk about why do all diets work? I mean, really, I'm, I'm going to burst the bubble here. Most, I would say virtually all diets work because generally they cut out processed foods and you increase fiber intake. Uh, and so your carb intake switches from simple carbs to high fiber carbs. So there's less sugar that you're getting in your body. And then, and then there's going to be less processed foods, which can be sugar grains, uh, that sort of stuff. But anything processed tends to jack up the metabolism because we've talked about before it's pre-digested. Your body doesn't have to do any work in digesting it. It's already been broken down and processed for you. Uh, and so it goes right from your gut into your bloodstream very quickly, which your body has to deal with. It gets very hard on the body and it will spike insulin levels. And when you spike insulin levels consistently over time, it's very irritating to the cells of the body. So they stop listening properly and we develop something called insulin resistance, which is type 2 diabetes, as we talked about a little bit earlier, um, which is just puts us in fat storage mode because uh, the body has to keep releasing more and more insulin. It's just a downward spiral of, of non-healthy living. Um, and so much better than the American diet, but, uh, even with the same, you know, gross macro content, uh, it, it does look very, does look much better, uh, and delicious by the way we've, so actually when I was in chiropractic school, that's kind of how we tended to eat was more of a, on a Mediterranean style. We have switched to paleo, which we'll get into, but, um, but that kind of took over. Um, so another popular one out now is the keto diet, um, which is very similar to an Atkins diet, uh, back in the day, Atkins, you don't really hear much about Atkins anymore, but it was a very kind of low carb diet, a little higher in, in fats, but it was a good weight loss diet. Uh, keto really started as a therapeutic diet for epilepsy. So they actually noticed other con mental convulsive disorders, but, uh, they noticed that people giving patients a really high amount of fat intake was actually better for helping to control epilepsy and some of these other neurologic disorders. Uh, it's really popular now for weight loss. So a lot of people do keto for weight loss. Uh, there is the big thing that differentiates keto from the other diets is that it, again, you're it's whole foods. Generally speaking, 
It's uh, you're eating more natural foods, but the big thing is it's a it's significant carbohydrate restriction, and even a low fiber intake. So they don't even just to really cut out as many carbs as possible. The uh, even even like vegetables are not really allowed on that diet if you follow it. It what what happens on the keto diet? It basically forces your body. So you you actually starve your body of a glucose so much that it forces you to convert your stored fat into fatty acids and ketones. So interesting, when you burn fat, you can actually make sugar from fat, but you can also um, you can also burn ketones as energy, which is a byproduct, again, of converting fat into fatty acids and ketones. And so if we do this slowly, kind of what happens is you have three fuel sources. I think we've talked about this before, but you've got the your sugar that's floating around in your blood that gets regulated very tightly. Too much, too little, not good. You have a whole hormone system in your body that is designed to regulate the amount of sugar in your blood very consistently. So from your last meal, you're going to eat that your sugar in your blood. Too much gets stored, not enough, or you know what's there you can use. But typically, if you just stop eating, you're going to have you know, let's say four hours of sugar available in your blood just floating around to use for energy. After that, your body switches to a a fuel source called glycogen, which is basically a stored form of sugar that's stored in your liver. So when your body uses glycogen, then it converts glycogen into sugar. So as you you burn what you, from your last meal, once your blood sugar would start to get a little bit low because you're going through the sugar, then your body will start to burn glycogen in your liver. And you can have anywhere, and this is there's this is not hard science. I mean, every individual is different, depends on how much activity and metabolism and everything else. But you can go from maybe, you know, four to 20 hours of fuel of stored glycogen. So even if you didn't eat for 20 hours, up to 20 hours, your body would still be possibly running off of that glycogen uh, in your liver. Once the glycogen reserves get low, then what your body does, it will start to pull fat. If you have access to fat and you have low, if your insulin levels are where they should be and you don't have type 2 diabetes, your body can start to pull fat out of your fat stores and then use that for fuel. And you can, again, convert that into glycogen in the liver. You can burn that directly through, you know, by burning ketones, etc., converting it into fatty acids and ketones. Um, for most people, what happens is, is you know, we go through the blood sugar, we start to dip into the glycogen reserves and then we eat again and then the body uses some of that sugar and then it will fill up your glycogen reserves. And so most of us are never really getting into this fat burning mode where we're actually going through that. If, if we really dip into uh, our ketones or our glycogen rather enough and we don't make up that deficit with the fuel that we eat, then what your body does, if it has access to fat cells, it'll open your fat you won't burn the fat directly, but you'll convert that fat into glycogen and then you'll you'll constantly use that as sugar. So that's typically the process that the body goes through. But when you go into ketosis, your body you're never filling those glycogen stores back up. And so you're you've you have to you start running on a different fuel source like ketones. And you're always gonna burn some sugar, you're always gonna make some sugar, but your body can can start to run on ketones. Uh it, it's very hard to do. Um we, we, don't, we don't get into a full depth on how to get into ketosis uh, right now. It's very hard to do, and it's very hard to get knocked out of. 
most people have never had to do it. And so it's a really hard transition to get your body to become what's called metabolically flexible, where your body can pretty easily switch fuel sources between sugar and ketones. A lot of people that try this go through something called the keto flu, which they just feel like trash. They literally feel like you have the flu. And that's just because your body is really struggling to, it's never had to burn ketones. It's never done it. And so it's, uh, it should like, we have this ability. It's there. It's why I always say like the body is genetically gifted with defense mechanisms against starvation. Uh, we just have never, most people in the West, we've, I've never missed a meal that I didn't want to miss basically. Right. So I've missed meals, but only by choice. Like I've never had to go long periods without eating. We, I have food at my fingertips whenever I want to. And so that's, uh, that's an important thing to remember. Uh, we're just not good at it. So getting the body metabolically flexible is why we're such a big, you know, proponents of intermittent fasting is you start to get your body good at switching fuel sources. You don't fully go into ketosis, of course, but you start getting your body good at going, okay, I can start pulling out of the fat reserves rather than just burning uh, glycogen. One, so some interesting things, again, with the epilepsy stuff, brain function does seem to really increase with, um, you know, burning ketones for fuel. Uh, so that's interesting. A lot of people that do it just talk about mental clarity and the brain actually is very efficiently, it will very efficiently run off of, uh, ketones. There are less free radicals. So when you actually burn sugar for energy, the biochemical pathways produce a lot of free radicals, which are, uh, basically free oxygen molecules that can be damaging to the body. They can break up other compounds and it, like like chemical bonds uh, in other parts of your body can be damaging for DNA. It's one of the things having a lot of free radicals can cause DNA damage. So it's a fairly clean fuel to use. Um, it's extremely hard to follow. As we said, there really was not a whole lot of long-term studies that we're starting to get some of this. And there are some negative effects of being on the keto diet long there. It can be really hard on the min- You have to make sure that you're getting enough minerals in it. Your body burns through so much more minerals uh, in ketosis, in, in burning fat into fatty acids, breaking fat into fatty acids and ketones and then running off those ketones. So a lot of people can cause damage with that and it can be really hard on, on your microbiome. Uh, so a lot of the, the gut bacteria, um, it, there's a different bacteria will thrive under ketosis, uh, than the other ones. So a lot of them really struggle and that can, you know, having good, healthy microbiome is very important. Not that I think it's bad. It's just that, no human or animal has is able to get into ketosis in extreme circumstances for defense mechanisms, basically, to survive. It's not necessarily something that I think should be done long term. It's not a way to live, per se. Um, I, I, I do think it's incredibly effective. Uh, and it's hard to do. I think there's better ways to do it, but it really works. I've had patients do it and just see in kind of a lot of them didn't look really healthy when they did it. I think they lost fat so quickly and there can be some negatives with that. But it, it really, you get once you get into that state, it's really good for getting rid of some of the extra pounds that we are packing around. Um, the keto diet macro is uh, 20% protein. So it's a little higher in protein than the standard American diet. It's only 5% carbs and 75% fat. So again, by 
ingesting fat in, you keep your body in fat burning mode. You actually can burn the fat. As long as you don't introduce glucose, as soon as you introduce glucose, it kicks your body out of ketosis and your body will switch back and start burning sugar again. And then it has to get back into ketosis, which can be tough. And this is another thing. If you're not good at getting into ketosis, if your insulin levels are, are tough, if you're not doing it, your body will actually burn. If you, if you're kind of forced to stay into sugar mode, uh, your body will start to burn protein your own muscles, your protein, rather than fat for sugar. And so there's something to watch out for there as well. Um, paleo diet is is the other kind of big common one now. Um, there's uh, It's known as, you know, caveman diet, um, which is different than the carnivore diet. I will talk about that, the Stone Age diet. Basically, the whole concept here is if you look at the healthiest people as far as chronic disease, uh, on planet Earth, it is hunter-gatherer tribes. And we look at what they eat, and it's trying to mimic m- looking at the environment that our genetics were forged in and even current modern-day you know, hunter-gatherers. We really can't find any evidence of chronic disease. Bones are strong. Um, a lot of people you know, say, well, they didn't live very long. Well, but that's not due to disease. It was due to starvation if they didn't have enough of the right types of food around, which they were, you know, meat eaters and occasionally vegetables when it was when you couldn't eat the meat. Um, and injury, you know, if you got, if you broke an ankle, you're useless. Uh, you know, that's not going to work. You get cut and get an infection. Uh, you know, I think that happened a lot less back then because their bodies were much more in tune with their environment. But, you know, they didn't have a lot of the modern things that can save our life now in a crisis. And so a lot of them you know, died earlier as well. Uh, but if they lived long, the ones that lived long lived a really long, healthy, long life, and they were very functional the entire time, meaning it wasn't alive, spending the last 20 years of their life not being able to move, in pain, sick, on a bunch of medications, etc. They were very they were could hunt, they could be they could help their tribe uh till really late in life. Um the paleo diet consists a lot of fish, uh kind of free range grass fed meats. So they were hunting deer, buffalo, you know, whatever, uh, animals that were running and, and animals that were eating what they were genetically designed to eat, which was grass and everything else. Uh, eggs, vegetables, fruit, funguses, roots, nuts, um, really didn't get a lot of grains in. So excludes grains, didn't eat a lot of beans, not a whole lot of dairy, uh, they didn't really have a way to, you know, they didn't have herds and that sort of stuff. It was, they, they used animals to eat. They weren't kept around as much. Uh, potatoes, they ate uh, salt, um, you know, but they didn't have a lot of refined salt. It was like natural salt. Uh, they didn't eat a lot of sugar. There was no way to get sugar outside of fruit and no processed oil. So, I mean, they didn't have anything processed. They couldn't process it. You know, it, it, it would spoil, you know, you had to eat it as soon as you, you could. Everything was seasonal. You didn't get to eat bananas in winter. You know, it was you ate what was there. Um, and that's, again, it kind of followed those rhythms of how we're designed. I, I would say a basic thing of the paleo lifestyle is just it's eating whole foods uh, that are are the way that they were made. We say foods by God versus food by man. Avoiding processed, refined, nutrient-poor factory foods. Uh, so we're, really, it's a lot of you're really cutting out things. Anything processed, you're going to cut out. So grains, legumes, refined sugar, dairy, a lot of pasteurized dairy products. I don't. Again, we talked about dairy. I think on the last one, I don't think that dairy is the worst thing. But um, 
it it the way that we consume it not great just as a as a breakdown of the macros here this is a lot more evenly split when you look at the paleo macro so it's about 40 percent fat so it's not nearly as much fat as a keto diet but it's a lot more fat than the uh you know standard american diet than the mediterranean diet etc uh it's about 25 percent protein so that is up we're increasing the amount of protein that we're taking in but again that's when you look at what our paleolithic ancestors ate they were eating more protein uh, and then the carbs were about 35 percent and they were very high on uh plant car plant produced carbs it wasn't grain carbs it was plant produced so higher fiber carbs um the the uh, uh when you look at this i get protein compromises uh about 50 percent of the calories in average western diet which is considerably lower than the averages of 19 to 35 percent found in hunter-gatherer diet so even in um that 25% there was there are some people there are some you know evidence that we were even up to 35% and that and it would vary of course so you know let's say you go out hunting and you you grab a a bison you're going to get a lot you're going to eat that while you can uh you get a you're going to eat that you're going to eat what's available and so you might eat a ton of protein for a week and then it might be lean times maybe you can't find an animal so then you're going to then you're going to go back and eat your what you can dig out of the ground pick your berries that sort of stuff uh it was it was meat seafoods other animals product and and a lot of the paleo stuff and this kind of gets into the carnivore diet it's just not as strong in the carnivore diet or not as strong in the paleo diet is that you're also going to eat all parts of the animal you're going to eat i mean that really is the big tenet of the carnivore diet is is and we'll get into that in a little bit but you're going to eat not just meat, muscle meat there's also bone marrow you're going to use every part of the animal possible for nutrients and uh it is important um we did talk about lower carbohydrate in index on the paleo diet and lower glycemic index so the glycemic index is a rating of basically how quickly the carbs that you eat are dumped into the bloodstream um and that we you really for your the sake of your metabolism you want a lower glycemic index uh we talked about that on the last podcast but a lot of the foods that are paleo even if they had carbs in it, they were very low glycemic index carbs. And then if we look at the fiber intake again, um, you know, a lot of people, it's certainly, you know, fiber is, is good for your gut. There's some evidence out there that it may not be as essential as we think, uh, which is even news to me and, and something that has kind of blasted my brain a little bit the, the last year or so here. But, um, you know, we, a lot of things we're told we need to eat whole grains so that, that we get enough fiber in our diet. You see this with like on your Cheerios box that it's heart healthy because it's got fiber in it, which is so stupid to me. Uh, <laughs> like it's just so crazy that we're, we can get away with that. But non-starchy vegetables, um, they contain eight times more fiber than whole grains and 31, 31 times more than refined grains. Each, uh, sorry, even fruit can contain twice as much fiber as whole grains and seven times you know, the amount of fiber is refined grains, fruits and vegetables. If you, if you need fiber in your diet, fruits and vegetables are, 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 uh, where you get your fiber, not grains, but we're told that all the time. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the marketing behind heart disease and, and all that stuff is, uh, benefited the food industry greatly. Again, that's one of the reasons I just don't trust any of these morons, uh, generally uh I, there's a lot of people that i trust uh but they're generally not in places of power in the government because they seem to have been uh lost their minds and or bought off 
uh, to say something that is untrue that benefits people. And um, I think there's lots of evidence for that. When we talk about the fat, so uh, there is, again, you know, a decent amount of fat in uh, the paleo diet. It is dominated by monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats uh, with a good balance between omega-3 and omega-6 fat. So omega-3 and omega-6 are two different types of, there's omega-9s, uh, but there's those are the two main types of polyunsaturated fats. Monounsaturated fats are things like that's where you like olive oil is monounsaturated. I think avocado oil is a monounsaturated fat as well. Uh, don't quote me on that. I could be wrong, but I think that's true. Uh, one of the things with these types of fats is this ratio of omega three and omega six. And Dr. Katie talked about this on the last podcast. It's it's really the the high amount of omega six that we eat that is. Um, kind of damaging or dangerous for the inflammatory pathways in the body. Uh, and so eating a paleo diet when you're eating, you know, more fish and and those types of things. Uh, and our hunter-gatherer ancestors had it easier than we do because uh, even the the other meats that they ate, the buffalo, the cows, you know, the the deer, they would all, they would all, and the cows were wild at that point. I don't even know if there was wild cows, uh, but um the, even those types of animals, because they were living in their natural environment, they produced omega-3 fats. We're the only place that we, the only animal that we can get omega-3s now that isn't wild, 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 is fish. And when I say wild, wild, I mean, we live in Minnesota and you can, you know, the, the deer are out free range, but they're eating corn. And so the types of fats that, as we grow all the corn here, the types of fats that a deer produces nowadays is different than if you were to put that on a grass field in a plane somewhere, plane, not, not like an airplane, but a, a flat piece of land in a prairie where, you know, they naturally habitat and they eat different types of foods, so they, they produce different types of fats. And so even if we tried to eat that now, it's just going to be really hard to get the, the amount of omega-3 that we need. Omega-3 fats are essential for health. Uh, you need to get omega-3 fats in your diet. Uh, and also we need to cut out the cut down on the amount of omega-6 fats that we eat, which is uh, huge. Basically, anything processed, they're really big in seeds. You get a ton of omega-6 in seeds. So much of the stuff that we use uses seed oil, other types of vegetable oil. And we just shouldn't, you're never getting that much processed oil if you ate the actual vegetable. And so getting away from some of that is really important. When we do talk about like oils to use, you know, we in our house, we generally use... Um, olive oil or avocado oil uh, when we put it on salads or whatever um, and then cook. I think avocado is a little bit higher smoke point and then you may even be able to use other things like uh, MCT oil which is a which is a higher um, and other types of oils that are you can use that are high that won't become toxic when you cook with them but even animal fat saturated butters, lards, tallow that sort of stuff can be really beneficial as well cool thing about the the paleo diet is you actually had a really high potassium intake low sodium intake um unprocessed kind of natural foods contain you know up to 10 times more potassium than sodium well nowadays that's just super flipped uh potassium is i mean an essential nutrient and low potassium is associated with high blood pressure heart disease strokes um and the when you have too much sodium it's the same thing you it's too much sodium is also linked with, so not enough potassium and too much sodium are both linked with high blood pressure, heart disease, and stroke, which is the, you know, uh, 
one of the top killers in America, one of the top two killers in America, depending on the year. Uh, and so we, you know, today in, in the standard American diet, we typically eat twice as much sodium as we do potassium. Um, you know, because the paleo diet, one of the other things too, is you really want to look at like a broad range of, if you are going to eat your vegetables is, uh, you know, they would, you get a wide range of our hunter gather answers would eat a wide range of, of vegetables, berries, vegetables. So you're really covering the bases from, um, you know, getting all your, your vitamins, minerals, antioxidants from not just plants, but even animals. Again, when you eat a liver from a Buffalo, it's got tons of nutrients and minerals that you don't get in muscle. Uh, and a lot of that stuff, you, even if you didn't get a lot of people think, well, we need to eat all these vegetables to get all of our antioxidants and all of our minerals and vitamins. Well, a lot of that stuff is found in an animal that ate that stuff for you. It's kind of the whole concept behind the, the carnivore diet, which we're going to get into next. But, um, and it, what's really interesting, even if you go, I'm just going to take vitamins for all this stuff, you know, how it's designed naturally is how you're designed to, to get it. Uh, and there's all these other cofactors and everything that helps make absorbing. So you can eat the nutrients, but are you absorbing and utilizing them? It just doesn't seem to happen as well when you take supplements. And I'm a big fan of supplements, but supplements, again, are to cover bases. And so on the paleo diet, we're, we're trying to get a wide range of naturally occurring fruits, vegetables to get our, nutri our, our, our vitamins, nutrients, antioxidants, all that sort of stuff in. And then again, same thing, eating more of the whole animal, liver, bone marrow, bone, um, kidneys, heart, that sort of stuff, uh, because they're full of that stuff as well. And that sounds weird to us today, but that was very n normal, probably even up to 50 years ago. I mean, the fact now that you think about when we raise a cow for slaughter, you know, I don't know what happens to most of the body parts, but, uh, you know, the muscles certainly get cut up because we all love that. There's nothing better than a steak, but you know, it's all the other stuff that I'm like, I wonder what they do with all those hearts. You know, I think we give it to our dogs as dog treats, like our dogs eat better than we do half the time. I'm, I think, uh, the carnivore diet we'll talk about in this in a little bit here is a little bit of an offshoot of the paleo diet. I think the only real difference here is that it puts a little bit more emphasis on eating animals and less plants. And the argument here is that our hunter gatherer ancestors meats were the prime thing, the choice thing that they ate. They really only ate vegetables. They really only ate fruits if it was necessary because they couldn't get an animal. It was an unsuccessful hunt and they were hungry. Then they would break out other things like tubers, and which are, you know, kind of a relative of a potato. So there is evidence of this that that when we look at, you know, what percentage of protein it it's it might even be higher, and not just protein, but then fats would be higher and less carbohydrates because they were eating more of these, more livers, hearts. It was all part of the animal, and plants were only a necessity. And if we're if we're genetically forged in that, you know, that's the whole thing. And people go, well, you can't eat too much meat because it's bad for your heart. You get cancer. There are studies that show that, which is probably true if you're just eating the meat. But that's the whole thing. The carnivore diet is not about eating more meat. It's about what types of meat are you adding in. I think all of us get enough red meat. I think all of us get enough chicken meat you know, fish meat, it's, are we using the livers of everything? Are we using the hearts of everything? They're chock full of nutrients. Um, this is called a nose to tail, you know, diet basically. So liver, heart, marrow, pancreas, brain was, was, uh, um, even eaten and actually a prized thing in a lot of these tribes. 
And, uh, you know, there's a big history of that. And so that's the whole kind of premise behind the carnivore diet. And you really get out of the vegetables, especially in today's world, you know, and this is what really there's not only is so in today's world, we grow a lot of our vegetables, the non-organic stuff, especially with pesticides and, and fertilizers and chemicals that we might be ingesting um, that can be really hard on our gut, you know, glyphosate been linked to gut problems and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's this whole concept of every living thing. So this is what I think is the most compelling argument behind the carnivore diet. Every living thing does not want to be eaten. It wants to live. So animals have legs and teeth and ears to hear us and noses to smell us so they can get away ideally. And if not, they can fight us. So they have a fight or flight response to you and they have tools for that. Plants don't have that. They Plants can't escape a predator. And so what they use is chemicals. Um, and they, the, these chemicals are stored in the leaves in, you know, of the plant. And it's not just for humans. It's insects. It's other animals. When we eat a plant, you're, you know, the leaf of a plant is the powerhouse of a plant. It's how the plant gets its energy. Um, the seed of a plant is the next generation of that plant. That's where, you know, so what's interesting about a plant is really the only part of a plant that is designed to be eaten is the fruit part. So a lot of plants use the fruit as a kind of lure so the animals will eat the fruit part. Uh, it's tasty. It's got full of sugar. It's delicious. They eat it. If they eat the seed, they don't crunch the seed up and break down what's in the seed. The seed is actually a lot of the times protected against that being broken down. Uh, and it passes through the digestive system and it gets pooped out. So it gets, the seed is still intact, but now it's got, now it's been moved away from the, the plant. So it's how it spreads uh, through nature and it's got fertilizer built right in it to help grow successfully. So this is the whole concept. This is why fruits on the carnivore diet uh, are most are, are kind of allowed. Uh, depends on who you ask. Sometimes people don't even they stay away from that. A lot of people that do carnivore, it's meat, it's animals and fruit. So I wouldn't even say meat because I don't want you to think steak, which is great, but you also need to think everything else uh, of the animal. Um, you will not be nutrient deficient on this. There is more you have literally an animal. So what's amazing. One of the things I've learned is that if you eat nose to tail, all the nutrients that you can get, you know, virtually all the new, I shouldn't say everything cause I don't know everything, but let's just say virtually all the nutrients that we could get, uh, from, uh, our plants that we, that we, you know, prize them as for giving us all these nutrients can be found in an animal. And it doesn't come at the downside of also there being chemicals in these plants that can be hard on digestive tracts of people. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of our, I've heard, you know, a lot of our medicine has come from plants. There's chemicals in plants that can be very powerful, especially when they're distilled or whatever, concentrated. Well, a lot, you know, can cause an effect a little bit, can also cause an effect. We just may not see it. I don't think everyone is as susceptible to this, but there's a lot of people that are actually susceptible to vegetables. And, you know, we've had, there's, you know, we know that like the nightshade family can, there's a lot of people that are really sensitive to the nightshade family, um, which is your tomatoes and your eggplants. There's chemicals in there that can be really toxic to them. Uh, and they don't, they don't do well with that. And so it's really interesting is you have people come in that are like, I went vegetarian and it changed my life. And then there's people that come in and go the total opposite. I, you know, I switched to carnivore and it totally changed my life. And it, I, so this is where I don't know that there is one diet that we should all follow. I think that this is, we have to play with this. Um, I have started implementing more. Okay, so let me, I, I'm convinced the carnivore diet has merit that, that in the sense of I do, I, I get the concepts that 
is it turns out that a lot of our vegetables have, there's lots of good stuff in them, but they come at a downside as well. There's also chemicals in there that, that are, can make it hard for us to, they can irritate us that the plant can use those chemicals to help prevent digestion, to help prevent us from, um, wanting to eat it again in the future, right? It's a defense mechanism where we don't get that with animals. Um, and so I have started to look at that and cut back a little bit on some of the vegetables that I eat. And there is a list of some vegetables and you can Google this sort of stuff, but like, you know, maybe there, there's a really good book that I read called The Carnivore Code written by a, a medical doctor named Paul Saladino. I'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes here, but that I found very compelling uh, and did a really very, very, very thorough job of explaining all this. Um, even for me, it was a lot. Um, but I've started taking liver, heart, pancreas, bone marrow supplements, um, even testicle supplements I've taken uh, to help get some. There, It's a desiccated, it's a free range from New Zealand liver, you know, organ supplement basically to help get, I have not eaten liver yet. I have not eaten, we have done bone and bone marrow and that sort of stuff, but not liver, not heart yet. I think we're getting there. I got to work my way up a little bit <laughs> before we do that. Um, I really just got to find a good place to get liver from. But anyway, that's the whole concept behind the carnivore diet. So it's kind of an offshoot of the paleo diet, but I think that is the right way to look at this is to go, okay, if we actually take a step back and look at our hunter gatherer ancestors who were the healthiest people on the planet earth ever that we can find. Um, and how did they eat? And it would, they ate like animals ate, they ate like they were the environment that they were in. And so it's just getting back to that less refined foods, healthier, wide variety of meats and proteins. If you can adding organ meats into it, decreasing some of the more toxic you know, vegetables. I know that's weird to hear the word toxic and vegetable, but there are toxins in vegetables and start playing with that yourself and trying to figure out, all right, if you have bloating, if there are digestive issues, if fatigue or whatever, you know, maybe, maybe you would do better on the vegetarian diet, you know, which I don't really have to go over, but maybe you would do better by cutting some of the vegetables out and adding some other things back in. I will say this personally, that since I've added the liver stuff back in, I feel like my immune system has been just really rock solid, uh, better than, than it normally is. Uh, and so, and I, you know, again, people are like, did you notice a big difference? No, I didn't notice a big difference when I started taking my liver supplements. I felt like I was in pretty good shape before that. Again, I'm trying to do in this, adding this stuff in cause it makes sense to me and I want to be 80 and feel great and still do the stuff that I'm doing now. So, you know, that's why I'm doing it. It's not like it quote unquote changed my life. But the, the logic of it did. It really made me think, you know, so I'm a big fan of paleo, big fan of the carnivore diet. Uh, and again, maybe going pure animal products and no plants at all is a little bit extreme. Um, but I still do fruit often. Uh, there's very little toxins in the fruit. They're in the seeds, yes. Again, the seeds have the genetic material of the plant. Your plant. There's specific chemicals in there that you do not want to eat. For instance, I do know this. I used to eat chia seeds in, in a smoothie, which I don't do smoothies anymore because it processes it for you. It's a food processor. It breaks it down. Um, I want to do the digestion, not have a blender do it. Um, but you would also break up that seed and release the in, the internal contents, which I noticed bloating whenever I would eat my chia seeds. And I didn't really put two and two together, but now I'm like, I, I, like I quit doing it because I'm like, I just don't feel good when I do that. 
And now I understand why, because we're opening the seeds up and you're, you're, you're really destroying the genetic material and there's chemicals in there that I was sensitive to. I'm not saying that everyone is, but that certainly made a difference for me. So we're going to wrap that up today. So our, our strong advice to be hard to kill is, is to start playing with some of these diets that we think are the, are great. You know, the Mediterranean diet, the paleo diet, um, the keto diet on short terms, carnivore diet, and, uh, start, you know, playing with that and seeing how your body does, um, with this different way of eating. Um, I often think it's easier to add stuff in than it is to take stuff away. So if there's things that you love to do, it's really hard. It feels like a punishment when you want to start making changes. But if you add stuff in, like maybe you just add liver supplements in, you can, uh, maybe you just add, you know, uh, liver in itself. Um, maybe you take some vegetables out, but keep the fruit in, you know, whatever, play with different things, but to start taking the good stuff away. Like if you like your pizza every Friday night, probably not the best thing for you, but you know, instead of taking that away and then you having a moment of weakness and going back to it, just start adding the good stuff first and you can make changes slowly over time. A little bit of advice there as well. So we're over an hour here, so we're going to cut it off, but, um, we will uh, be back in a couple of weeks uh, with another episode of Hard to Kill. Until then, I have to take over my wife's sign out. Uh, Jesus loves you. Mm-hmm.